Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, on this, the second day of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting in Washington, D.C. this year in person. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, our interview with Elbit Systems of America CEO, Renan Horowitz, and some key takeaways from day two of this great conference. But first, joining us is United States Army Major General Wally Rugen, who is uh, the director of the Future Vertical Lift Cross-Functional Team at the United States Army Futures Command. Sir, it's an honor and pleasure talking to you. Well done. That was, uh, it just rolled off the tongue. Yeah, it really did. It's good to be in person. Um, it, in it's very good seeing you uh, in, in person. It's been a while. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And Rafael USA is sponsoring our coverage here at AUSA. Obviously, your programs are uh, getting uh, the bulk of the attention here, right? 80, potentially $80 billion contract with the future vertical lift uh, with uh, FLORA, the future long-range assault aircraft uh, contract that's going to be next up. I know that we're in the quiet period. Yep. Uh, but what I wanted to do is ask you, um, what's the timeline for the decision, right? I mean, you've, you've been embedded with these two programs for eight years, right? They've been ongoing for a while. The formal competition has been going on for some time. You've flown and, and have the operational uh, information from both of the, the competitors. What's the time scale for the down-select decision? What are some of the elements, you know, this was a great press conference here to hear from the Army aviation leadership. Everybody, General Moyer did a great job. General Francis did, uh, General Barry also, uh, in, in talking about, you know, speed the integrated effort that you guys are bringing to this. What are the elements from the FLARA program that are being folded into the future uh, armed reconnaissance aircraft competition, the FARA, uh, to make sure that you are benefiting from all the processes and information that right. you learned in the first phase of that effort? Right. I think, again, you know, the JMRTD, which were the first new build aircraft we've done in a generation for the Army, um, gave us the sets and reps across our, our talent uh, management um, both in industry and in, in government. So we had a, a core group of folks who, who now know how to do a new build aircraft. Um, and taking it from a tech demonstrator, which is a lower bar than a prototype, into the FARA CP or competitive prototype of the FARA. Um, so we raised the bar and we kept the time at, at the same uh, level. So four and a half years to get a, a flying prototype into a government flight test. And, uh, and so far, I mean, again, industry's gone at risk. Uh, over well over 60% built and as I mentioned in this press conference you know that's about two years after the first appropriated dollar uh, so it's it's moving out very uh, expeditiously um, how do you uh, respond you know there, there are folks look at the flora and they say hey this is an interesting competition because they're very different airplanes right one is a, t- uh-huh. uh, a tilt rotor the other is a compound coaxial uh, design we have a little bit of a dissimilar uh, uh, competition that's going on in the FARA and and there are, there are a couple of questions about it right I mean one is um, you know is the program necessary right can the army afford both of these programs at the end of the day some master aviator uh, friend uh, army aviator friends of mine who flew the scout mission and then flew the apache say look this this is just not even the right way to execute this mission yeah. right there are different ways of doing it how do you respond to yeah, to critics who say that you won't be able to afford both of these because folks get flora and they say you know just as the chief said right the key to flora is speed and range um, and that's what you're shooting to get sure. out of that. But what about yeah. on the on the far side of it? Yeah, violently disagree. And and again, 
you have to look at our entire portfolio, and, and you, don't ha you can't neck it down to two aircraft because that's the wrong question. How many programs were we doing in the 90s? How many ACAT-1 programs? And that's our largest category of programs. That's, that is represented by money, resourcing, right? So we were doing six, and this decade we're going to be doing about four and a half, right? So when, when you look at it, and this is not me saying this, but this is the Congressional Budget Office saying this. These are red teams that are serious red teams. So Congressional Budget Office came in in, in May of 2019 and said, at your multi-decade look, we've looked over uh, a 20-year period, having both these aircraft in production is affordable. And why is that? Well, it's because we're buying out our current fleet. Just like coming out of Vietnam, where we, our fleet was modernized, um, we were able to jump to the future of Black Hawk and Apache. That resourcing headspace allowed us to do that. And so if we achieve, the one assumption I'll grant you is if we achieve the low end of our multi-decade average, we're fine. And that's the CBO saying that. Um, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments just did a deeper look, and, and the report just came out last Friday, and it's a report I, I think everyone should read. And they gave us a, a good bookend, and they referenced it based on the Army top line and then the Army RDA accounts. And on both those uh, percentages, our, and these are, again, cost estimators that are not in our program offices. These are cost estimators that are either in DASA CE or CAPE are saying, hey, you've met your cost estimate. Um, within these bogeys. And, and again, we're laser focused on cost, so we can do both. Um, and it's because we're at that inflection point that's the 70s. And the chief talks about, hey, we, we modernized every 40 years. Well, when we tried to do it in the 90s, and then when we failed again uh, in, the, in the early teens, you know, the early teens, and we were talking about this uh, earlier, this is the sequestration, this is the Bipartisan Budget Control Act, right? So huge resourcing challenges and and the scout failed those two times not because of the bad capability but certainly because of the bad budget and and what about it's the wrong way to do the mission right that this may uh, right that folks get what flora is doing and why it's important right in the pacific something an airplane like that is going to be critical if it can go right. at 300 knots and has a 900 mile range whereas folks look at the fara and they say well this is an army attack aviator or, or a scout guy's answer to the problem given how differently we did the mission, for example, in Iraq and Afghanistan with overhead assets and a variety of other things. Sure. From, from your standpoint as somebody who, who is in the business, what's wrong with that argument? Perhaps? Yeah, I think it's a coiny argument, so counterinsurgency. And so sure, certainly we had uh, air superiority in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and so uh, you could do it unmanned. But I would, I would caution everyone, you know, seeing in 2D without the ability to know that you're even being shot at, um, which is this unmanned thing, and looking through a soda straw, um, we need that capability to do certain things on the battlefield, but it, it is not a capability that's decisive. Um, and so when you talk about the decisiveness of fighting in an advanced teaming way with advanced tactics that takes the best of our unmanned platforms and our manned platforms, that's where we're harmonizing around that, that concept. And so when we operate disaggregated, so away from uh, ship ports and, and airports that can be uh, targeted, and we can quickly aggregate, which vertical lift does. And then with the advanced rotorcraft configurations, close that distance, and we call that relative sanctuary. So what is relative sanctuary? Outside of medium range ballistic missile. And that's where we feel like we need to be, so we're not a punching bag for any future threat. Um, we close that distance in a period of darkness, and we can strike or we can assault. 
And those, that's what both these aircraft requirements are, are uh, centered around, is, is being able to, again, operate where we can close that distance. We're also operating in the lower tier, the air domain, and that uh, brings with it a tremendous amount of gaps. And so the point defenses of these A2AD, if you're at uh, 30,000 feet, that point is a diameter of 300 nautical miles. I mean, everybody knows this. But when you come down to uh, 50 feet or 100 feet, that diameter quickly shrinks, and then uh, we're able to generate standoff, which Army Aviation has always done, and overmatch. And so do we stand outside of their weapon engagement zone and bring lethal and non-lethal effects? Uh, and we're doing that in real life. You know, we're out right now for the fourth time in four years out at our western test ranges, flying against live threat emitters with a network, right, with the future network that's getting us sensor to shooter. And we're doing uh, very high-end um, concept development in the dirt. Um, and I, I was going to say, your generation of aviators were used to actually bringing an airplane black, back with branches and, and stuff uh, sticking out of all parts of I it. I will refuse to confirm that. <laughs> um, uh, and perhaps even save some on your mantle if it didn't destroy yeah, yeah, your airplane yeah. at the end of the day. Um, there's a piece of this that I think people are not focused as much about, which is the unmanned layer that goes mm -hmm. into this future vertical lift architecture, as well as the connectivity piece of it. I mean, effectively, um, the whole, uh, you know, whether we're talking about Project Convergence or whether we're talking about JADC2 in the main, is a, is a really secure cloud network that a multiplicity of nodes can, right. can connect to uh, and, and still have... Um, there's some degree, you know, a lot of resilience to it, and you allow you to get the information when you need, whenever you need it, even if you're at the tactical edge. Walk us through the unmanned and project convergence elements of the program and how you guys are integrating that into the core of both of the airplanes that you're developing. Yeah, so our, our air-launched effects um, are these small drones that, that we transport forward in our unmanned aircraft. Uh, we flood the zone with these with a host of capabilities and a host of behaviors. Right, so there's capabilities and behaviors to be able to uh, do a, an assortment of tactical tasks. So do you need a hunter-killer uh, capability? Do you need a retrans capability? Um, do you need uh, just a, a, a lethal capability or a non-lethal capability? How do you self-heal uh, you know, your, uh, your team? And, um, and these really bring a tremendous amount of, of a standoff for us. And, um, we're seeing that it's, it's quite decisive. Uh, it's decisive in the capabilities they bring because in any threat has to address these small drones and they have to address them in an asymmetric cost advantage. So these things are cheap, they're plastic, we can digitally print many of the prod, uh, parts that we snap off as we belly land them and, and uh, they're only sophisticated enough to be viable. Right. And then they gotta shoot a very viable, very sophisticated missile that costs uh, sometimes 10 times more than uh, to take it out. Um, so this is just kind of a diabolical way to, to excite the IADs, hunt the IADs, and then degrade or destroy the IADs. And, and then from the uh, network's uh, standpoint and how sure. you guys are thinking and conceptualizing that, because one of the big challenges the Army always has, which I think sometimes the Air Force and the Navy you know, may not have in the forefront, 
they're in a place where actually they have a lot more connectivity. They're high, at higher altitudes or, for example, at sea. Yeah. Whereas an army aviator has to cope with the fact that you might not have as much connectivity in a valley and certainly on the ground, that's a much, much bigger problem. How are you working the architectural pieces of this? No, I think, uh, I think, again, space to air, air to air, and air to ground. We're, we're focused on all three. Um, and I would say that the lower tier of the air domain, that's 300 feet and below, provides a resiliency to the network for a decisive maneuver, right? So there's a freedom of maneuver aspect that we need to generate as a joint force. And then once you generate that freedom of maneuver, and that's that window or corridor that we open, you have to exploit it. And you have to exploit it with maneuver to be decisive, okay? So um, this thought that, that we can just uh, um, win it with non-maneuver assets, I think is, is, a, is a false uh, argument. When we talk about uh, the network also, we have to be very careful about um, doing things at a strategic or operational distance uh, that requires tactical information. And so if, if the information is going to be generated at the tactical edge, it should be used at the tactical edge in a uh, low latent manner. Um, and then hate to, uh, to, to inform everybody, but sometimes we miss. Sometimes things shoot a joint munition and you miss. And so who's telling that joint munition provider, hey, you missed, re-attack, that exploit and analyze capability in a very low latent manner. So imagine um, a company troop uh, doing a zone reconnaissance in, in a high-end, large-scale combat op. Uh, we've modeled that and, and we've seen over an eight-hour period 50,000 sensor-to-shooter interactions. How are you going to transport that back to an operational or strategic headquarters in a network? the pipeline and the bandwidth are crushing. That's why you have to keep it at the tactical edge, those decisions at the tactical edge. And then I would just say this, and this is kind of snarky, I apologize, but if all the robots are dead, are we just giving up our country? No, we need a trained force across all the joint force that if some of these uh, unmanned systems and robots go down because of a cyber hack, we can still fight and win. And there's a resiliency we need to have on that side of the spectrum as well. So we can't just do it all unmanned. It has um, an inability to understand commander's intent, an inability to have situational understanding, um, and a granularity. They don't have the five senses. They don't see in 3D. There's a lot of limitations still to fully unman it. Um, and um, I, I know that security is uh, at the core of, of, of this. And, of course, you're building it to be resilient in the event. Uh, in, in the face of a highly contested electromagnetic environment. So I think that Correct. goes without, without saying. Um, let me ask you about speed, right? Um, we are in an era where uh, virtually every single leader is saying we're out of time, we have to move mm -hmm. fast. Uh, that's something that you guys, relative to other programs, are trying to do here. But then there are folks who look at Flora, uh, Flora for example, and say, look, this program really has been ongoing for the better part of a decade. Right. Um, you know, we did the Chinook in three years, for example. And, and you look at a number of other examples where the Army has, has fielded capability dramatically, uh, at dramatically higher speed. Some of those programs now are 60 years ago. I mean, hard to imagine that the Chinook is as old as it is. Uh, and yet it will be still uh, the, one of the best helicopters on the planet 40 years from now, right? Um, what are the keys to speed and to getting this right? Um, you are moving the FAR program forward, mm -hmm. but how much faster could you execute that? Well, you know, part of that is, uh, you know, it's a complex uh, cocktail, right? So 
we, we've had red teams with independent tech readiness assessments and that tech readiness is important because at the end of the day we want technolo technology that's going to be transformational right so we want transformational technology and we want to make sure that it's going to be ready uh, to, to go into our uh, EMD phase and then our, our, our low rate production phase and then our production phase. Um, so that tech readiness is important. Uh, resourcing is important too, right? And so I think uh, for a risk pro proposition to the department and to Congress, um, they're not just going to, you know, give us all the money we need to go as fast as we need because we just, there's an urgency, um, but it's not that kind of urgency that World War II brought us, uh, certainly. Um, and, and again, I think when we talk about speed, you know, I'll, I'll footstop it again, even though you referenced it. FLARA is uh, instantiated in this uh, appropriation with a four-year acceleration. So when we have set the conditions for an acceleration, we're certainly taking that, and Congress supported that. Uh, and, and again, that transparency up at the department level from us to them and to over to the Hill um, has allowed that kind of thing to happen. Um, FARA, you know, we're, we're prototyping, and, and we've always said we want to fly before we buy so we don't make the mistakes we made in the past. And so that prototyping aspect of it, it's going to take some tactical patience because we do want to fly before we buy. And so does that slow us down? Yeah, but again, I think it informs us on our tech readiness and, and what's achievable and affordable. Here's a requirements question, right? The, and, and it's a concern that's come up uh, sure. in the, in the, in the uh, FARA program in particular. If you look at it from a FLARA standpoint, again, two very mm -hmm. dissimilar aircraft. One is a uh, tilt rotor, the other is a compound coaxial. Uh, in the case of the FARA program, you know, it's a much more conventional helicopter against the compound coaxial. And yet, there, there are questions that sometimes, uh, you know, folks on the industry teams are like, wow, I mean, some of these things are really rigid and they, they don't seem yeah. to really understand why they're as rigid as they are. Rotor diameter, sure, for example, sure. right? If you go with a 40-foot diameter rotor, um, there are a whole series of advantages to that. Mm -hmm. Compactness is one of the things, right? You always you want a lower helicopter, for example, as mm -hmm. opposed to a taller one. Uh, in some respects, I'm not trying to judge a competition at all. Right. Uh, on the other hand, there are folks who look at it and say, look, a 40-foot disc is normally, you know, the disc loading on that is an 8,000-pound airplane, not a maybe more than 12,000 mm -hmm. or 14,000 pounds. Are, are, are you being flexible enough in, these thing, in, in this competition to make sure that um, if somebody's got a better way of doing the mousetrap and say, hey, I can get one extra foot of rotor diameter, for example, I can give you so much lift, or well, what, other, what other change there is, you know, whether it's on the bay or anything else. I know PRISM is very important and, and the airplanes have to be able to carry that. You know, are, 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 you, are you being flexible enough in these trade-offs to make sure that whatever it is you eventually get is actually going to scratch your itch without actually being like, hey, this is... Yeah, you know, if we had, you know, if you ask the United States Marine Corps if they wish the Osprey was six inches wider, I think they'd have told you, yeah, we'd rather it was six inches wider and we could put on V yeah. in it. Yeah, no, and I agree um, with with your characterization fully. Um, one, we don't call them requirements at this stage in the game for either aircraft. We call them attributes, and we've tiered them level one through three. So industry knows with the draft requirements documents that we've shared with them the draft system performance specs that we shared with them, and then we've collaborated on those to uh, um, move towards a final on, again, what's effective in theater, what's uh, achievable, and what's affordable uh, across really those three um, attributes. So everything's an attribute, everything's tradable, right? And, and this collaboration between government and industry is, is ongoing even now. Um, so when you maybe characterize something as rigid, I don't, 
we're not rigid on anything. Um, and this is why we're prototyping, because we want to see what, what is achievable. Have we laid down some initial attributes? Yes. We've gone through uh, three design iterations on FARA, and every one of those design iterations have been collaborative with you know, our industry partners. And so um, we understand where those limitations are and where their, um, their uh, rubs are, and they've told us. And so, again, we're working on the trades on that. And so everything is tradable. Uh, if, if you understand in our wonky, in our requirements process, we are only currently in our ACDD, um, so abbreviated capabilities development document. And that ACDD gets litigated every year in the AROC or Army Requirements Oversight Council that goes all the way to the chief, right? And so every year, um, I have to talk about what our threshold and objective requirements are. And I would tell you we're laser focused on our threshold requirements being the alpha model of the aircraft. So are our alpha models flawlessly perfect? No one has ever been flawlessly perfect on the UH-60 alpha, the AH-64 alpha, or the certainly the CH-47 alpha. Um, and, you know, you referenced three years, but it took a long time to make that you know, the great aircraft that it is today. It took a lot of incremental upgrades because there were problems with that alpha model. Um, and again, we understand that. Uh, and so again, I think we are doing it different. I, I think you, you should blame the requirements guys. Um, I, I, will, uh, I will accept that, but that's why the chiefs kept me here too. You know, this right. is my four year anniversary. Uh, four years ago today, I think we were doing this uh, at AUSA, uh, talking about FEL, and I think having you know one leadership team um, handle the requirements and be very consistent with the requirements and disciplined with the requirements is is certainly how we're addressing that. You're the Hyman Rickover of the Army Aviation Committee. Well, no, that is a little <laughs> bit uh, too high a praise. We hope to be, though. We hope to be. Sir, thanks very much. Best of luck on the program. And I would love to have a deeper conversation on requirements and trade-offs and how to uh, think about them, right? Because it is, it is a very, very delicate art. Yeah, anytime, Vago, anytime. And now, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. General Motors Defense is sponsoring our technology coverage. And it would not be a trade show unless uh, I was talking to our next guest, Ronan Horowitz, who is uh, the president and CEO of Elbit uh, Systems of America. Ronan, uh, it's a pleasure seeing you again live and in person at an AUSA. First, it's really a pleasure to be with you, Vago, and I was so happy to be here at AUSA. Uh, with a lot of our uh, industry colleagues and uh, military customers. Uh, it's absolutely uh, great. Uh, it's been a terrible pandemic, but you look lovely for anybody in the audience. Everybody's used to us doing our shtick in video, whereas we're doing it audio this time. You were kind enough to join us a couple of months ago uh, when we uh, talked about some ideas for the new administration as it gets in the saddle. Um, you know, we're now at uh, a show where uh, at Navy League, we heard the message of speed and the necessity to adapt innovation. We heard from uh, Frank Kendall, somebody who you consider a friend, uh, who uh, is Secretary of the Air Force now and said we're out of time and it's important for us to change. And Christine Wormuth, the Army uh, Secretary, said the same thing and we heard the message from the Chief as well. From your standpoint, how, how is the innovation move, needle moving? How does it need to move? Everybody wants to more, move more quickly. Frank made the case, it, you know, experimentation for its own sake 
we're out of that time. It's time for us to start to adapt uh, and, and you know, adopt things and move, move quickly and move the needle. From your standpoint, what are some keys to bear in mind and examples to be able to do that and do it fast and well? Yeah, absolutely, Vago. This is an area we're really focusing on. And I think Elbit America um, is a good example of where you can still have innovation with a, a company that has a lot of creative, large portfolio and capability, but at the same time have the scale to actually bring that innovation to the warfighter. Because I think that's the key. We, we've had in the last few years a lot of focus on small businesses, Silicon Valley, a lot of innovation, maybe sometimes for the sake of innovation, but not really being able to bring it to the warfighter. You come to a company like us, they have access to a very broad portfolio of technology, ideas, very creative people, understanding the mission requirement, the operation requirements, but also has the scale and the capability. This year, you know, we have over 3,300 people in the U.S. We have a large engineering workforce. We have a significant footprint for production of all kinds of capabilities. And we can take that innovation and brings it to the warfighter. Behind you, uh, you can see our CPI-2 command vehicle, the 1087, where we basically, and it sounds simple, but we took and revolutionized how the Army Command Post looks like. And we just briefed uh, uh, Major General Collins on, on some of the achievements over there. And uh, the guy, the program manager, reported that we were able to reestablish, relocate a command post in 23 minutes, where traditionally it would take days because of the construct of how it does. That's an example of where this command post is going to be survivable and lethal against a peer adversary like Russia. Just an example of innovation. Um, one of the uh, keys is how quickly you can do technology adoption cycles, right? I mean, you're the American arm of an Israeli company that has a reputation of being able to actually take commercial and militarize very, very quickly. What are some of the keys now? Because, right, as you said, the department has been looking at non-traditional uh, suppliers, indeed looks at the traditional industry sometimes as the problem and not the solution. What's the right balance and approach to be taking in this? You know, and what are the limits to a pure adoption of commercial, right? There are security concerns, for example, when people talk about cyber, we want to move fast and we want to move commercial. Well, the problem is that a lot of the commercial, a lot of the military code uh, isn't even secure enough. Uh, so what's the right approach from your standpoint, you know, given that the company has a lot of experience doing this work? Well, I think, I think it is really an understanding of how to take advantage of commercially developed technologies into the military now. Maybe a good example is in night, in, uh, night vision. You know, we, we just got a large contract for the ENVGB, the Enhanced Night Vision uh, Goggle Binocular for the US Army. And the feedback from the soldiers is this equipment is the equipment that allows them to do what they need to do with a mission. It's rugged, it's effective. It provides them the augmented reality, the innovation around that. It provides uh, rapid target acquisition, but it does so with an understanding of how equipment needs to operate in the field by soldiers in rugged conditions. And I think that's a key point. There are a lot of commercial technologies out there that are not designed to do that. There are other competing technologies from other very reputable companies that are not designed to work in that environment. So I think we bring that capability, the access to the innovation and the technology while understanding the mission requirements uniquely for the soldier or the marine or the airman.
Um, let me take you to two uh, broader strategic uh, questions. One is uh, a concern about Buy American that's rising in this administration. Obviously, the president has talked, you know, if American tax dollars are going to go somewhere, it should go to American industry. Supply chain issues uh, came up, obviously, in the course of the pandemic. I think everybody understands maybe masks and other things. But, but ultimately, if your allies and partners have the best technology, are, are we potentially on the verge of taking decisions that will actually both hurt our allies as well as our own capability ultimately? Um, there are some folks who you know, heard the NRO, National Reconnaissance Office language, that was very, very restrictive in terms of foreign companies competing. The administration's point was, wait a minute, that was for a highly classified system and it should stay in the United States. From your standpoint, are you sensing a change in rhetoric? I mean, this is now the third administration you and I are having this conversation. We had it during the Obama administration. We had it certainly in the Trump administration. Do you see anything worrying? And what's the advice you have for the whole ecosystem to make sure that we get yeah. this right at the end of the day? Yeah, Vago, look, I think the main thing we're seeing in many cases is a disconnect between where the policy is and what the intention is and how it's being implemented at the lower level. And that's where sometimes you get these examples of no foreign or, or pushing uh, you know, foreign-owned companies out because of misunderstanding of the policy. I think, in general, many, many countries around the world want to see technology being built at home, jobs being created, there's nothing different on that. I think it's very legitimate for the U.S. to be able to do that, and I don't see an issue with that. We have invested in creating the infrastructure in the U.S. to do that. We have almost 3,500 employees. We'll do 1.6 to 1.7 billion dollars of business this year. We have the footprint. We can bring the thing. I think what we are really asking the administration is to make sure that companies like us that are foreign-owned but have mitigation agreements and invested in infrastructure are going to be treated just like any other U.S. company. And we will be the conduit to import the technology, this innovation that I think the U.S. warfighter wants, but do it in a way that doesn't conflict with the, the wish to have U.S. jobs, American jobs, and also U.S. control over the technology. So I think there's a way to solve that puzzle, and I think we are a good example of where it goes. Um, have you already been seeing negative language? Has it affected your business yet, or is this more of um, a transition for a new administration coming into office and a misunderstanding? Like, what, 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 how would you characterize all? We, that? we have seen we have seen examples, and I don't think it's, it has to do with this administration. It has to do in the last few years. We have seen cases where that gets interpreted by contracting officers or program offices to exclude foreign-owned companies without understanding the NISPOM and the fact that these companies have mitigation agreements and so forth. We have seen that. I think that needs to be worked. The other trend we've seen is a significant increase in higher-level classification and sometimes even over-classifying of programs, which is also a barrier and an obstacle. We have a good dialogue on that with all the services and with DOD, and I think at the executive level, we're seeing people listening and willing to accommodate. I think the issue, the main issue is how it gets interpreted at a lower level, and yes, we've seen isolated cases. I don't think they represent a policy. And, and you think it'll be better once we have an acquisition and sustainment secretary, for example, and I know that Heidi Shu, who is the uh, research and engineering, is highly attuned to this issue. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, Ms. Shu will definitely, is very attuned to it. I've had many discussions with her in the past. I think she's a good supporter of that. 
I think when we have an AAS uh, undersecretary, I think it will be helpful as well. But overall, again, I think it's something that we are working with. Definitely you've seen isolated cases. I think that my message is uh, a lot of education by the executive branch on what is the policy and how it should be interpreted. Um, let me, uh, there's a big crowd gathering because you're the star, the star of this show uh, at this stand. Uh, let me ask you about workforce challenges and also rising material costs. There is inflation pressures as we come out of the pandemic. Everybody is buying, everybody's trying to get back to normal. Uh, wages are going up because talent is in high demand. A lot of people decided to retire during the pandemic and said, listen, you know what? Unfortunately, they're highly experienced people. I had a conversation about that with Lieutenant General Dave Bassett uh, of the Defense Contract Management Agency. He said, look, I mean, he said, these are highly skilled people we're starting to lose. Talk to us about where we are and what the challenge is on manpower and on materials cost. Does the Pentagon need to make some remediation on this? Because ultimately, almost everything, whether it's semiconductors or steel, is going up in price. I actually think this is a very key point. So there's two points there. One is the availability of highly skilled workforce. We are fighting and competing with various companies at all levels. Engineering, uh, assembly lines, technicians, and definitely we're seeing pressure on wages uh, as a result of a lot of different things, and I think that that's absolutely is there. Same thing for supply chain. I do think the government uh, and the DOD, I'm not sure everybody understands that that's going to reflect on future pricing. And if there's an expectation that the industry will just have to swallow that, I think that's not very realistic. I think we'll, we'll all will face increasing costs around both labor and supply chain. Uh, it's definitely a struggle. Uh, what we're trying to do is diversify where we have locations. We're trying to leverage remote work as much as possible. Of course, we can't do that on a production line. But anything around engineering, we're leveraging remote work and, uh, and digital technologies. Uh, I'm on a, a manufacturing and workforce task force with the Reagan Foundation with uh, several people from, from Congress. It's led by uh, Marilyn Hewson and, and a few others. And uh, we're going to come up with some recommendations around uh, workforce as well. So I, I think it's, it's definitely uh, a, a big challenge that I see. Well, probably the biggest challenge that I see for the next couple of years. And, and can you uh, give us a percentage cost increase at this point, right? I mean, because at some point the department is going to have to help you reimburse some of these costs because they're not under your control. I'll give you just one example. I mean, it's hard to, to make a generalized comment, but we've had to experience a 15 to 20 percent increase in hourly wage costs in one of our facilities because of a very strong competition with the likes of Amazon and also with some of the uh, the payments from the federal government around the, the pandemic. So when you're talking about an increase of uh, 15, 20 percent of hourly wages on assembly, that is that becomes expensive. And if you re really project it through the supply chain, uh, those things uh, can cost. So, so I expect the next couple of years will be a significant challenge with that. And on materials, uh, is the material uh, side of it a problem as well? And if so, can you characterize that? Well, materials, part of the issue is in some cases you just can't get the materials around electronics and chips. It's a big, big crisis and a big issue of even get allocation of materials. Uh, where you can get the allocation, we're starting to see some inflationary costs around on some of the commodities. Not everything, but some of it is, is increasing. I, I don't have an average number. It really depends on, on the different commodity, but we're definitely seeing costs in that. We're seeing significant cost increases in shipping and freight uh, across the board. So it it's definitely puts a lot of pressure on, on us in the industry to really know how to counter it, how to make sure we have productivity improvements, 
that can counter some of it. How do we implement digital technologies, uh, the digital, the industry 4.0 initiatives and so forth. We're making a lot of investment in that. Uh, to try to counter those uh, those increases. Can you, I mean, you, you pride yourself on running a lean uh, company. Um, can you lean your way through this, right? I mean, you have a very demanding boss uh, in, in Israel, Butzi Machlis, who, uh, you know, wants to see the, the bottom line and the, and the growth well, which you've been delivering. Yeah. I would say that we definitely can do more in lean and lean out. There's no doubt about that. And we have a lot of initiatives around leaning out, doing things right the first time, leveraging new technologies to do that, uh, automation and so forth. I don't think we can lean, we true lean, we can counter all of those cost increases. I think that we will be facing, the industry and our customers will be facing uh, some increased cost on labor and supply chain that we'll have to take into account in the future. I, I don't think we can avoid that. Renan, thanks very, very much. Really appreciate well, it. It's, it's always a pleasure. a pleasure always to talk to you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. And a word from our sponsors, L3 Harris is sponsoring our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control, and of course, Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And joining us now is Chris Darty uh, of the Center for a New American Security, a United States Army veteran with the 75th Ranger Regiment, uh, who is also one of this town's sharpest uh, analysts uh, on the United States Army. Uh, Chris, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Vago. Appreciate it. Uh, an absolute pleasure. So uh, we're now, uh, you know, it's the, the end of day two of uh, AUSA. Uh, you know, we've been hearing a lot of messages from uh, senior army leadership. We heard from uh, Secretary Warmouth, Christine Warmouth, uh, who is uh, the, the new army secretary, did a, a, a very, very good job in sort of framing the challenges uh, in, ahead for the United States Army. Uh, we've also heard from the chief, General Jim uh, McConville. He's going to be our special guest uh, on tomorrow's program. From your standpoint, what are the key messages? What is the Army leadership getting right in its messaging? And, and, and what maybe not? Where could they do better? That's a great question, Vago. And I think I'd start by saying the Army always struggles with having a single coherent message. This isn't a new thing. I, I, I used to talk to my colleagues in OSD. Um, one of the great things about being in the office of the Secretary of Defense is you get to spend a lot of time with uh, the military uh, members of the office of the Secretary of Defense. And so we'd often ha times have Army strategists that were on loan from the Army that were part of the part of our office. And I would often talk to them about the Army's messaging problem. And they would always say, "Look, Chris, the Army is a master of you know it's a master of all trades, kind of a jack of all trades force. We have to do whatever the nation calls upon us to do." Um, whenever the nation calls upon us to do it. And that breadth of mission area leads itself inherently toward a difficulty inside the army with coming to, coming to a single unified message in perhaps the, what we've seen out of the Marine Corps over the last four years uh, under Commandant Berger, where they've got this clear, you know, we're about China, this is what we do, this is all we do, and we're laser focused on it. And so what you see in the messaging from the army, whether it's from the secretary or from the, the chief or from the various uh, major commanders is a myriad message. It's, it's, a, it's a diverse message in, in which a whole host of things are priorities for the army. And in the eyes of each of those people, each of those communities inside the army, they are correct. That particular thing they're looking at, whether it's uh, missile defense, whether it's networks, whether it's future vertical lift, whether it's you know next generation vehicles, you name it, that thing is a priority to that person. And it's probably a priority one of the mission areas inside the army. The difficulty is that those things don't kind of all add up when you look at the budget environment facing the army and the strategic environment facing the nation. 
And one of the difficulties I think the army is coming to grips with is how to, how to take all the things they're trying to do, some of which can ostensibly be, you know, can be couched in terms of the China problem, but others of which are most definitely not part of the solution to the China problem, and yet are still priorities for the army. And I think that is really honestly what the army is coming to grips with is how do we message that we're, we're you know, the army is part of the solution for China, which I, I do think they are, I believe that, um, but are they messaging that correctly? Is it being accurate? And are they also coming out with a message that says, oh, by the way, the nation faces other threats, other threats for which the army is probably going to be the lead element, whether that's Russia or Korea. And so we can't just stop doing those things. We have to be able to do them in a cost-effective right. manner, and we're going to need some modernization to do that. And so I think that's really where you know, the, the, the opening message sounds great. You, know, you sit down in these talks, and, and you know, whether it's you know, General McConville or, or Secretary Wormuth, what they're saying sounds great. But then you kind of you, you pick at the scab a little bit. You say, okay, but you're trying to grow the force and you're trying to modernize it and you're trying to keep it ready. And the justifications for some of those that occurred in the 2018 NDS aren't there anymore. So you know, there's, not, there's not the tension on the North Korean, you know, tension with North Korea on the Korean Peninsula that says, hey, we have to keep army readiness high and we can't afford to cut the army. We're not still at war in Afghanistan the way we were during the 2018 NDS, which was another driver of why the army got a bump in force structure. And then, you know, we've already met a lot of the goals of the European Deterrence Initiative um, that was started in 2014 and 2015, started as the European Reassurance Initiative and evolved into the Deterrence Initiative. You know, our posture deterrence-wise in Europe has gotten a lot better. And so they, there's starting to be some, you know, there's some marginal questions here about where the budget dollars should go for the army and where the budget dollars should go for the, the joint force as a whole. There's certain many people, um, you know, everybody in the U.S. Navy and most of the folks in the U.S. Air Force are starting to say, you know, we're starting to wonder about this 30-30-30 budget split and maybe we should be getting some more money and maybe that should come out of the army because, well, they're the, you know, the service is going to contribute the least in the Pacific. And so there's, there's this like tension that's sort of pulling all of these things apart as they're trying to come up with this core message. And I think right. it's just, it's adding to the centrifugal forces. Well, so what is it that they should be doing? Because what's really, really interesting is that whenever folks are looking, for example, at uh, Russia, there's a clear understanding of sort of the, the key role that the United States Army plays there. Whenever we get to the Pacific, it, it's somehow, um, you know, I, I don't know whether the challenge is that the Army's sense of centrality is not there in the Pacific. Um, I, you know, General Odierno, the late General Odierno, uh, who is being, whose, whose loss is being keenly felt at this show, um, you know, was passionate about making the case for the army in the Pacific and, you know, that it's, it, it really is a land war at the end of the day, right? I mean, because people don't live in the water as you used to observe. Um, but, you know, folks have a, have a more intuitive and easier understanding of saying, okay, well, this is a sea air theater. And every couple of years we hear that the army is going to put its strategy out and it's going to be compelling and everybody's going to understand it. What, what is the argument that the United States Army leadership should be using, Chris, in order to make the case for a service that is absolutely integral in America's war fighting, how does the Army leadership need to be selling these missions ultimately? Logistics and air and missile defense, um, which I would argue are the two biggest Army missions for the Pacific. Uh, and the unfortunate thing from the Army perspective is there are two things the Army has traditionally not wanted to invest in. Um, those are two mission areas where uh, they are just, they are generally speaking, the, the sort of last in line for resources when, when uh, you know, when, when money's being doled out. Um, and they're just not, they're not core primary missions of the army. When the army conceives of itself, it conceives of itself as a combined armed force maneuvering across the plains of Northern Germany. Um, it does not conceive of itself as 
quartermaster corps, you know, leading mules on mule trains through, you know, Eastern Tennessee, um, you know, during, you know, a campaign against the Confederacy. That's just not how the army conceives itself, even if that's a critical part of the army's history, it's just not where their mind goes. And so I think, you know, part of this is a salesmanship job externally to say, hey, you know, the army can do this logistical thing and they, we can do this base defense thing and it's important to us, but it's also an internal sales job to say, we really have to come to grips as an army, as a corporate body with the idea that in the Pacific, we might be the enabling force and we might not be the decisive combat arm in a fight with China and that's okay. Um, and I think that's a hard thing for the army to deal with almost, almost at a cultural level. Um, and, and I think the other thing I would say about the logistical piece of this, because this is near dear to my heart, because I'm currently writing a paper on this very topic, which is, that, which is to say the army's logistical posture for the Pacific is significant, although they've been cutting it back in recent years, but it is not oriented against China. The army's logistical posture in the Pacific is oriented against the Korean Peninsula. That is what the army trains for and plans for and resources for and has for decades. And so the problem is that we face is that the logistical systems and logistical posture that we have in East Asia is not designed for the threats that we are likely to face in the future from China. They're credible, although you know, one might squint and say maybe they're perhaps not as credible as we would like them to be vis-a-vis Korea. But you know, I, I think that's you know, regarding the sort of pacing threat of China, they certainly aren't for that. And so I think the first and foremost thing the army has to say, because you, you, know, you cannot get army forces across the Pacific, whether, regardless of what kind of forces you want to use, whether they're fires forces or you know, UAV operators or infantrymen or armor or what have you, you can't get them from the continental United States to the, the Eastern rim of the Pacific without logistics, without mobility, with all, without the reception, staging, onward integration, movement control themes, all the kinds of things that you think of when you think of big army movements. Um, but the, the last piece of this that I will come to is fires, right? And that's, I think, where everybody kind of fixates when they think about the Army's role in the Pacific. Oh, the Army can, they can be on land, and land is, you know, a more resilient platform for fires. And I would, I would agree with this. I wrote, you know, op-ed, one of the first op-eds I ever wrote many, many years ago about how the Army needed to think about fires in the Pacific. This is way before, uh, you know, any of these things started to be sort of mainstream. Um, as I pat myself on the back, I better not throw out my elbow. Um, but the, the point being that these things are contingent on having access to places that want you there. And one of the problems we have right now is there are places where we can go and we can get access for army ground forces. They're not, they're not, many of them are not huge, right? So we're talking like Guam and you could potentially put a long range hypersonic missile on Guam and it might be able to do some things in the Eastern, uh, the, 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 uh, the Western Pacific that might be useful in, in a conflict. But ultimately it's gonna be a limited weapon given the range and given the distance it is from a lot of the targets we might wanna hit. The problem is getting closer requires having access to, to local bases and local partners. So whether that's the Philippines, whether that's basing out of Japan, and those things present a significantly larger political and strategic hurdle for the army and for the utilization of those weapons. And I would argue this isn't just a problem the army faces, this is a problem the Marine Corps faces. The advantage the Marine Corps has is because they're expeditionally, because they're smaller, they don't come with the huge iron mountain of stuff. They don't scare off potential partners quite the same way an army unit might, um, just because it's just sheer number, a sheer numerical problem and a size problem that a lot of partners kind of go, ooh, I don't know that I want an entire brigade of forces here, plus all the supporting staff and the contractors. Like that starts to, that starts to make our allies and partners get a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but nevertheless, like that is a significant challenge. And it's one in which I do not hear enough out of the army say, here are our assumptions about access 
And oh, by the way, here is our plan, whether it's something that looks like Pacific Pathways or Pathways 2.0 or whatever they want to call it now, that gains us that access when and where we need it in the event of a potential crisis or conflict with China. Because it's all well and good to operate out of the Philippines in peacetime. It is a whole other matter to operate out of the Philippines when bullets are flying over Taiwan. And if the army fires are going to be relevant, they have to be able to gain that access when it matters. And so if the army is coming to me and saying, here's our strategic relevance and here's how we're going to do it, I think they need to marry that up with, here's what we're doing during the peacetime competition to ensure that we have access to the places we need, the bases we have to operate from when the flag goes up. And I, I think I'm not totally sure I always hear that. I hear the discussion sometimes about how, in, you know, one of the points the army likes to make a lot, especially they made, they made it vis-a-vis -vis Pacific Pathways was most of the armed forces that we deal with when we're, we're out and about in the Asia Pacific are their armies um, because most states' armies are the, the bedrock of their armed forces. That's a good point. And I think these mill-to-mill -mill relationships matter a lot, but they also have to be talking about not just mill-to-mill -mill relationships for the sake of having them, but the operationalization of those relationships and turning them into assured access when and where it's needed. Chris, thanks very much for uh, joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I want to have you back on because you've got a book coming out and it would be uh, terrific to have you on the program uh, to discuss it. Awesome. Thanks so much, Pago. Appreciate it.